ready. I'm fucking born ready, You are listening to Psychotherapist. I'm your host, Renee, here with Josh. What's up, Josh? What's up, Renee? Um, not much. <laughs> uh, we're just laughing at nothing. Uh, that's what we do here at the podcast. And other than um, laughing at nothing, what we are doing at the podcast is trying to make therapy less mysterious uh, less intimidating, more accessible, more fun, more effective. So we do have a guest today, as always. Um, today we are talking to Sam again. But before we do that, um, I am going to start answering questions that are sent both by podcast listeners and Instagram followers Probably just one or two each episode. So before we get back to Sam, I have two questions today. Both of them come to me through Instagram from Carrie. Carrie, your name might be pronounced Kari, given the way it's spelled. So I'm sorry if I'm not saying it right. I'm saying it both ways, so then I can't be wrong. Carrie, Kari. Um, she asks me, if I have any nutrition tips for migraines, and also if I have any mental health exercises that could help with chronic pain. So, yes, I do, and we'll get back to that. In terms of nutrition tips for migraines, I'm glad you asked this. Most migraines, most, most, most for sure, most migraines are actually about your GI system. That's what they are telling you, that there's a problem in your gut. So it could be anything from a reaction to a food, to parasite, to a bacterial overgrowth. There's lots of things it could be. So the first thing I recommend to clients who are having migraines, and I know everybody's going to roll their eyes or grumble or whatever when I say this, gluten is a very likely culprit. Um, it was for me, so that's probably the reason I go to it first, but it has been for a lot of people whom I've worked with. So the first thing I recommend is trying to cut out gluten, waiting three weeks, seeing what happens. Um, sometimes it takes up to three weeks to get it out of your system, or at least that's what people say. I've never had that experience, but I've heard it, so I encourage people to wait. Um, if it's not gluten, I recommend trying dairy. If it's neither of those, before we get into any more food things. A lot of people at that point will like to do an elimination diet. You know, there's a list of the common um, foods that cause reactions and you take them all out and then you reintroduce one at a time, blah, blah, blah. I don't like to put people through that until it's absolutely necessary because my experience has been that if we do a thorough gut cleanse and gut balancing, then that becomes unnecessary because a lot of those food sensitivities resolve in the process of healing the gut. So I think it's kind of torturous to do the elimination diets. And that's coming from someone who's like a gluten-free, sugar-free vegan. I have no problem like not eating things, but that I, I just think it's, it's, it's too much thought around food and that just makes eating unpleasant. So rather than go any deeper into eliminating foods, I recommend that people do a thorough gut cleanse. I am not going to get in to do that now. It, what did I just even say? I am not, <laughs> right? Can you guys, I go, just go do that. Okay. That was clear, yeah? What I meant to say was, what I meant to say was, maybe I shouldn't have taken that bong hit, but what I'm going to say is I'm not going to get into all of that now because it could take up a full episode. Um, 
And I may do a whole episode on gut cleaning or I may just do little pieces of it in future episodes. But to answer that, that's where you start for migraines. In terms of the mental health exercise that can help with chronic pain, when we take our mindfulness break, that's when I'm going to answer that question. So with that said, let's get back to Sam. Hi, Renee. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Are you? I know it's been a little intense for you since we last spoke. It has been. It um, has been, yeah. You know, it's uh, so two before... of the things I... Oh, go ahead. Nope, you go ahead, Sam. You go ahead. I was just I was going to say that two of the things that have probably stuck with me the most that I've thought about the most since we last spoke were the notion of those backseat drivers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, um, yep. And creating a dialogue with them. Uh, and it's been it's been really helpful and it's been really difficult as well. It can be very, very painful. And before we get into it, I just want to remind everyone because there was an episode in between your first one and this one, what we talked about the first time. So if I get any of this wrong, jump in. But for those of you, (laughs) for those of you who don't remember the specifics or who didn't have not yet listened to Sam's first episode. Sam is a married parent of two kids under five. They have been sober for three and a half years, recently came out as gender fluid. And we did sort of a, um, what would I call it? A, A survey or a review of your life at first and went through the fact that you had a a sex abuse incident at a very young age. You lost your mom when you were 20, um, following a period for her of self-medicating with opioids in response to abuse at the hands of your father, which you endured also. And your dad is currently dying, which is a particularly complicated grief situation for you. And that is most of the content I think that we covered. And then you and I did get into starting to build a morning routine for you. And what you're referencing right now was the idea of talking to the younger parts of you when they're activated to sort of begin the process of integrating them. So when you refer to those parts in the back seat, we're talking about 41-year-old Sam is driving the car and his parts that aren't integrated are in the back seat. And if any of them is triggered, they can reach over and grab the wheel. Our plan is to get them integrated so that Sam will be able to talk to them and reference them and hear from them, but they will not be able to make any decisions about behavior. So that's, I think, where we are. Does that sound right to you? It sure does. <laughs> yeah, all right. Okay. So the backseat drivers, how have you been interacting with them? I would say in the week following our first uh, session that I was noticing very strongly in the moment when I was starting to feel one of them take over. And uh, I could easily identify that this was not necessarily me, present day me, that this was a part of me that had, you know, that had suffered injury, that had suffered uh, trauma and was responding in a way that they had to do in order to protect themselves and survive. Yes. And to be very clear, those parts are holding wounds. And in order for them to be integrated, in addition to being able to love them, we have to be able to answer the unmet need, right? So can you give me a specific example of when you noticed a part coming up? Yeah, so 
uh, unfortunately, <laughs> in, in, in some ways, uh, it seems that they are often most triggered uh, during some sort of, it's hard to even phrase it as a disagreement because sometimes, you know, like we'd spoken about before, it's literally over where a dish goes in the dishwasher or, or something like that. But it, but it often happens with my spouse. And so there was uh, an instance, I believe, when I was cooking dinner and a question about schedule, uh, you know, tied to when we would be eating and when you know, things needed to happen. And the pressure of that immediately seemed to activate you know, one of those Sams in the backseat. And there was definitely this feeling that I was no longer in control of my response. Right. right. Um, and I was able to not put a, a halt to the, to the response. It did, you know, it still came out in yes, a way that yes. I would love for it to not have, but I was able to immediately sort of like grab a hold and uh, repair. Okay. And then after repairing, I was able to have a moment to myself to, and this was, and, th- and this to me was a huge step Yeah. to not be, angry at myself there we go to not feel ashamed and to instead instead just be able to address that that other sam in a way that said you're okay yes yes because the whole reason he's not integrated in the first place is because he didn't get that care right yeah so we we talked about the parts tend to get activated when those errant negative core beliefs get poked at. You know, I'm not good enough, I'm bad. And so criticism in the current can poke at them and they jump up the same way. And, you know, our egos can jump up to sort of protect us or as you put it, to protect themselves. And so what do you think that part, what was the original wounding that that part was, was feeling the bruise of when it got activated? So I actually have a specific moment in mind I that I don't. You do <laughs> that. I, I I genuinely don't. I don't want to imply that this is the moment, but it is but illustrative. It's I think. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. We when I was seventeen, we were moving from North Carolina to Pennsylvania, and the move was seismic in, in many ways for me. We lived there for five years. It was the longest place we'd ever stayed. Yeah. And I had started to really set down roots and, and have very close friends. And my closest friend at the time, the, a day or two before we were to leave, um, you know, we went out and kind of just had an all nighter and we didn't even do anything. We, we weren't out drinking. We weren't out getting high. We, we just drove around, um, and, and talked and reminisced and drove by the places that we used to spend our time at. And I didn't get home until probably, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning. And upon falling asleep on the couch, because all of my stuff in my bed was, it was already all packed. Uh, I woke up to my father, very angry, putting on his, his boots and looking at me, prodding me to get up and get out of bed. And that some of our dogs had gotten out. He had called animal control oh, to take these dogs away that, you know, we're not, we're no longer going to have these dogs. And as I'm trying to kind of 
just get myself awake because I've been asleep for maybe four hours. He, he looks at me because I'm not responding fast enough for him and says, I don't know why I even claim you. Oh, God, Sam. Oh. And those words have oh. just stuck. Yes, you th- yes, I would imagine they have. And so that, I think, is one of those moments that when I feel like I'm not doing something Right. Yes. Yes. On time. Yes. And, and this is, and this, the inverse is also true. And this is the thing that probably makes me even sadder when I get impatient with others. Yeah. I know that it Yuck. stems from that Yuck. as well. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up, Sam. I'm so glad you brought this up. Thank you. Y- yes, exactly. This is something people hate to hear. I hate to remember it, but generally when we are really bothered by someone else, it's about us and so what you're what you're talking about is you having by just by virtue of modeling and social learning which incidentally is the most powerful form of learning there is which is just when the learner feels particularly aligned with the model so with a parent of the same biological sex it's particularly easy to identify and you learn the behavior that they model yeah. you know it just that stuff gets in so that definitely is something i think a lot of us a lot of us are dealing with. And one of the things that was um, most important when you were telling us the way that you reacted and the way that you talked to that part is that you said you weren't angry at yourself and you weren't ashamed. So you're starting to separate your response from your father's response, right? You're, you're, you're yeah. building the pathways now to have a different reaction, which is that you're showing the part compassion, Right. Like, yeah, yes. it really hurt. It hurts. It sounds just like dad did, right? But you know what? We have to remember it's not him. We're grown now. Yeah. You know, we know we're okay. But it's still going to happen. And it's and that's, the, that's the critical piece is being able to identify where the hurt is coming from and address it there rather than keeping it in the present. So that sounds like a pretty big deal. It felt good. And I've tried to keep it up. But there's also this strange, I started to describe it to, to Jess, I, I, my, my spouse, I, tried, I started to describe it to her as in addition to these very identifiable pieces of me at certain ages that were traumatized, there's also this almost like this shadow that's back there as well. And this, and this shadow is, is, is very amorphous, very much just kind of feral, for lack of a better word. And it feels like I've been able to start to give that part of myself love and care mm-hmm. as opposed to, and, and I owe, you know, I mean, I owe so much to the last three years of talk therapy that I've done. But one of the things that was so fascinating to me after we spoke is that it felt like due to the talk therapy, there was this door that I never knew was there. And mm-hmm. you helped me find the key to open that door and start to see these things in a different way. And I'm prepared Yay. due to the benefits of that other therapy to actually start to handle that Perfect. and equipped to do that. But it's also still scary. It's terrifying. terrifying, Sam. It's so scary. It's so <clears throat> scary. And I, I like a lot this idea that for a lot of people it's important to do straight 
talk therapy before going into trauma work, especially for those who feel a little bit more removed from how the experiences connect, and especially for those who haven't yet had any validation for what they've been through. There's definitely a stage of of working with a lot of people on trauma that's just about giving the validation and normalizing yeah. the experiences. And basically what we're doing is resourcing for trauma work. You know, you when you go into trauma work, as you know, you have to have you know, you have to have some resources to support you. And and uh, some of those can be external in terms of support from other people, but some of those are internal. And so it sounds like you've been fortunate to have a really kind of lovely trajectory there where you had some really solid talk therapy with someone who it sounds like you have a really good therapeutic relationship with, and it seems to have led you right to the deeper trauma work. And so you're resourced for it now. Yeah, that's fantastic and as you just pointed out yeah that's all great yay yay for sam and it fucking sucks nobody wants to do this work you know one of the things that i've been thinking a lot about and even today was thinking a lot about was the idea that before these past few years and before doing that type of work that you were just talking about my own history held little value for me. It didn't seem as though it was an excuse for who yes. I was. Oh my gosh, Sam. Every single person I have ever done trauma work with has said some version of, but my stuff's not bad enough. It's either yeah. people have it worse or it's not bad enough for how I'm acting. It is one of the biggest obstacles to healing is that people don't think they deserve to feel the way they do. Right. Right. Yes. And and that being able over the past year, year and a half or so, I've really been able to accept and appreciate that. And that's helped me also, I think, to be more open and vulnerable about it. And yes. it's the reason why I'm doing this, because right? I, I do. I own it. And, and I want other people to know that it's OK to own that and to and to also still feel like to struggle yeah. with the idea yes. that, you know, the things that happened in, in the past that have, have marked you, have marked me, again, there's, there's value to it. And yet it doesn't have to define, it doesn't have to define who you're going to be. Right, right, right. It does. I think all of us with childhood trauma well, I see this all the time, all of us. It's probably not all of us. Most of us <laughs> with child, I, you know, I'm a Scorpio. I tend to be a little, a little extra. Uh, <laughs> all of us with childhood trauma, I'm going to say, go through some period of time when we are over-identifying with it, right? When it sort of becomes the story rather than right. part of the story. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and, and again, that's part of, that stage is part of it. Right. People go from not understanding that they have any to sometimes over identifying with it to the work. Right. But it's it's I think it's a stage I see pretty commonly. There's nothing wrong with that as long as we don't stay there. Right. You don't want to stay in a place where we feel defined by what happened to us in the past. Yes. And that I I feel like that is where I am now and where I have started to or 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 at least where I'm starting to unfold that these past these past six or seven months in particular, especially with being able to address my gender identity and address my sexuality and be able to feel 
finally as though I am realizing myself wholly, completely, and, and, and seeing who I really am and really always have been, that is, it, that has, to me, just feels like the natural next step. Yes. And as I do that, I start to appreciate, if that's the right word, all of this trauma, all, all of these things that I've been able to address and able to see and put into focus in a completely different light. And to recognize the forms of oppression and, and then the, the repression that had to happen in order to survive. And once I, and now that I'm recognizing that, now that I'm seeing that, it's been so important to me to connect with that. Yes. And to connect my, my own history with the history of, of other people like me. I think this is a good spot for a break. Let's do our mindfulness moment here. Um, this one is in response to the questions from Carrie Kari that I mentioned in the beginning of the episode. And this question was, do I have mental health practices that help with chronic pain? And yes, I have several. As a former chronic pain sufferer, I've tried many. Um, there are several I recommend. I'm going to start just with this one today. This is the magic egg meditation. Um, it usually takes about six or seven minutes, and I'm going to speed it up a little. So just know that I'm doing it faster than I recommend you do it if you're practicing on your own and faster than I do it when I lead clients through it. Um, if you do want to do it on your own, it is somewhere in my Instagram grid, Magic Egg Meditation, and my Instagram is psycho underscore therapist underscore Renee. Okay, so here we go. If you are able, you are going to sit comfortably with your back straight and imagine that you are inside a giant egg. Not a real egg with a yolk. That's gross a glass egg, a metal egg, plaster egg, whatever works for you. Just take a minute and sit with that visualization. See yourself there. And your egg has two openings, one at the top and one at the bottom. They can be either open or closed. Right now we want them closed. So again, see yourself there in your giant egg. The door at the top is closed, little portal up there. Shut, same with the bottom. And now turn your attention to the portal up top. Open that door, slide, whatever you've got up there. And now imagine that golden light starts to pour through that portal up top and it begins to fill up the egg. It gathers in the bottom, that golden light, and then it moves slowly up your body in increments, making your body a little warmer as it comes up so that you feel it rising. And we're going to speed it up and now you're just full. Your egg is filled with golden light, so close that top door and take a moment to see and feel yourself there in your giant egg golden light all around you 
making warm, maybe a little tingly. Now, locate what you need to get rid of, whether it's a worry or physical pain, an anxiety, a self-defeating thought, wherever it is located in your body or your mind. And now imagine that the golden light is sucking out whatever you're getting rid of. It sucks it out and you see it like black sludge suspended in the golden light. And maybe you want to go through your whole body and pull a bunch of different things out. Start up at the top, pull out some worries. Feel and visualize the golden light pulling it out of your mind and then you see it suspended black sludge go to the pain wherever it aches so that eventually you should have visualized whichever distresses you are seeking to rid yourself of have been pulled out into the yellow light they are now suspended blotches of black sludge let's go to that bottom door of the egg you're going to open that up and now the earth is going to suck all of that black sludge out. It's going to vacuum all of that crap down into the earth where it will turn it into fertilizer like other crap. So see it there getting sucked out down into the earth. And when all of that sludge is gone, close that bottom door. Now see yourself there again in that clear yellow light, golden light warm and tingly. Take a few breaths and you're done. Let's get back to Sam. And before we do, since I took a break before we finished the topic we were on, we were talking about, or rather Sam was talking about how important it has become to him to learn about and identify with the history of other people like himself. So and what, what has that meant for you specifically? How are you able to do that? Uh, well, there's been a lot of reading. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, books like Transgender History and listening to podcasts, yep, uh, yep. Making Gay History, watching documentaries like Equal and Pride, and seeing these types of stories, hearing these types of stories, reading these types of stories has been so affirming for me in many, many ways. And it's strange because I'm coming to it from a place of such privilege and a place where my lifestyle is fairly heteronormative, but being able to, again, it's almost like, it's, it's almost like therapy in a way, being able to have the affirmation that I don't have to look a certain way, dress a certain way, right. be a certain right. way, live a certain right. way, that what matters is what comes from within. And that has really helped me to fully accept myself at a time when I think the thing that I was most scared about is being accepted by others. Most scared that you would not be. Yeah. Yes. Right. right. Yeah. So actually, this reminds me, Sam, a few of my clients had questions that I think it's better to have you answer them, although I did answer them. It was the same question from several people. I answered it in the immediate, but I think uh, right now it would be better to hear from you. 
a few of my clients asked me what pan romantic meant and what sure. the, yeah right and so these were new terms for them a few didn't understand gender fluid either right the difference between being you know non-binary being gender fluid and so can you talk a little bit about that about about the discovery of yourself as gender fluid I think we did a little bit about that, but specifically about pan-romantic and what that means. Yeah. So the first thing that I should absolutely say, and that is um, that gender fluid for me, for me, not yes, yes, for right. anyone else, gender fluid for me, I think, was a way to open up and move forward. As soon as I said it to my therapist, I even qualified it with... I think this is where I am right now, but I think that this is where I'm headed. And I can firmly say that I am non-binary and that my pronouns are they, them. Okay. It, it was, I think from, again, just my own experience, it was yes. easy for me to say gender fluid and hang on to he in addition to they. Right. Because that's just where I was. Right. So to, right. Um, so to clarify for people, gender when, with gender fluid, you're moving between gender designations, non-binary, feminine, masculine. With non-binary, you are indicating that you do not identify as either of the genders currently, you know, currently indicated. Right. Is that how right. you're? Yes. Okay. Yep. Exactly. So gender fluid was this, yes, first step. Okay, pan-romantic. Right. So I, <laughs> this is going to open up a lot, I feel like. Um, <laughs> That's what we do here, Sam. <laughs> right, right. So some of my earliest memories um, of attraction and sexual experience um, were... Probably unhealthy, if I'm being completely honest. Um, although at that point, what what qualifies healthy versus non healthy, or unhealthy, and maybe I'm just putting that spin on it because that's how it would have been looked at at the time. Were when I was young, you know, probably five, six, seven years old, and involved experimentation with other boys, and of the same age, yes, the same right. age, and um, that was something that I think I can recall being talked about in hushed tones by parental figures. And so immediately it was like, this is bad. Do not do this. Oh, so, so and someone so, found out. Yes, yes. Even though I was never confronted with it and no one ever said, don't do this, I caught on enough to say, oh, this is bad. To I pick up the shame. This. Right, right. Right. Now, at the same time, there was no doubt that I was also, you know, especially as I moved in through grade school into junior high school, very attracted to girls my own age as well. And that certainly continued in through high school. Most of my, you know, my first crushes, um, you know, were, were girls. When I got into high school and I, you know, couldn't have planned this. Yeah. Uh, looking back, I simultaneously developed very strong romantic feelings for both a girl and uh, a year older than I was and um, a guy who was a couple of years older than I was and met both of them through theater. And it did not seem even like an option for many reasons 
that these feelings for this guy could be anything. So it was something again that meaning was it wasn't allowed, or meaning that you didn't mean it wasn't that you actually felt that way. Okay, okay. Well, maybe it was a little bit of both, <laughs> right? Um, and that's been the strain I think ever since then that has run through my life, especially when it comes to any sort of interaction with um, with men or or people who uh, identify as men. Like I, there has there's undoubtedly been periods of attraction. There's been, you know, even a little bit of sort of light fantasizing, but it has always felt like, no, 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 you don't really feel that way. Right, right, um, right, right. And I've only ever experienced, you know, any sort of physical relationship with, with women. Um, and then recently, when I started to reflect on gender and when I had that very affirming moment when I could look in the mirror and say they, them and feel beautiful and feel whole and feel like, oh, my gosh, I finally figured it out. The truth is, is as I continued, especially as I continued, as I started to really, truly educate myself right. and as I continue to learn about that history and I continue to to read and try and grow I'm struck with this fact of like I'm reading words about me and I'm finally able to articulate that I have had romantic feelings for people of the same sex the same gender multiple times throughout my life and even further on top of that this idea that there are some, you know, it depends on how you look at it. There are some people that say it would just be easy to say I'm bisexual. And yet that's a very gendered way of looking at Absolutely. it. And so for me, by saying pan, it includes everyone. Right. And by making it romantic as opposed to sexual, it reinforces the idea that for me, especially at this point in my life, because it, it, it's, it's hard to articulate, I think, in some ways, or at least it's hard to accept maybe for some people. But, like, I am supremely happy. You, you know, I, I, like, I couldn't ask for a better partner in Jessica. Right, I know right, sometimes she right. doesn't believe that. But, like, <laughs> I, I'm happy with where I am. And so, and so for me, it's this idea of being able to recognize and say, I have had these romantic yes. feelings. And, yes, yes, yes physically yes, yes. nothing has ever occurred. But, but, but that's okay. And that's who I am. And that's who I will continue to be. It, I Sam, yes, so well said. I identify as bisexual, and I have dated women, but primarily men. I am married to a man, and regularly people say, well, you're not bisexual now because you're married to a man. Right. You're right. As soon as he put that ring on my finger, all the hot chicks got ugly. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. Like, I don't, I don't even understand that idea. It's so weird yeah. and silly, but it's also... It just points so much to how important it is to other people to know exactly who we want to fuck. I'm not really sure why, right. you know? Right. Yeah. And so, and it's it's also similar to the idea of um, people using queer to identify, even if they're heterosexual sometimes, as almost a political statement, right? Just as a way to say, like, <laughs> I may have only dated people of one gender, but... I'm open to the idea that it might be different sometime. You know, I'm not keeping right. myself into that space. So, yes, as a way to own, to be who you are, to say, as part of my life history, I have always been someone who is attracted 
to many different genders and sexes. Well, not many different, but several different genders and sexes. And people. <laughs> right. Right. It doesn't mean right. you have to be acting on it all the time now to identify that way. That gets confusing exactly. for people, I know. Yeah. Yep. 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 Thank you. That's helpful, I think, to the people who are asking. And I, ex I explained it much more briefly and infinitely less interestingly. But yes, that was a question for people. <laughs> and so since that came up in, um, <clears throat> in that explanation, can you talk only, of course, to the extent that, that she'd be comfortable with it, a little bit about how this has been for your partner? Yeah. Um, I think that there are insecurities. Mm -hmm. Um that have maybe been, you know, rubbed up against that. I know she has, I, I think in a similar fashion, <laughs> and I don't want to say that this is what she is doing. I'm just trying to put mm -hmm. my perspective on it. In a similar fashion to when I have to maybe sort of stop and, you know, talk to those backseat drivers. Yes. Uh, I think that there are certain times when we're having a dialogue where, she, I can tell that maybe she's doing the same thing, that she's withdrawing just a little bit, that she might be a little scared. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and I think that that has become, while still being frustrating and sure, wouldn't it be lovely if I could just say whatever I wanted to say and right, right, she would right. just be like, oh yeah, sure. Right, but that is right. such unrealistic bullshit. You right. know, yes. no one does that. Right, and right, so, right. and so instead what has been happening and I don't know that she recognizes it and I hope she does is that I see her processing and, and adding to her own knowledge and awareness of who I am and what this means for us. And as I see that happen, I see someone who is quite frankly, I feel even closer to. And I don't know that that's something that I saw happening, quite honestly. Not that I thought that we would grow apart, not that I thought this would send her uh, away or that she would say, oh, I can't be with you anymore. You didn't, not you didn't think that, you didn't expect that. I didn't. And tell me, can I, you tell me a little bit about what about the relationship or about her or about did was able to take that fear away? I would think that that would be big. <laughs> about six, five, six years ago, uh, this was before my daughter was born. I can remember a very specific conversation that we were having. And I and <laughs> the sounds. I don't know what it sounds like, but <laughs> we'll the truth you, of the though. matter is, is I thank you. Uh, I was struggling a lot over the past decade or so with what it meant, not for myself, mm -hmm. but what it meant to be trans. Right. And I had a lot of questions and I had a lot of, and, you know, of course, come to realize, oh, hey, by the way, Sam, um, but as I'm, as I was working through that on my own, and I realize now that so much of it was the result of the oppression and repression that I was going through and had been facing my entire life. So, do you mean that you were, you were, it, like, you were investigating what it means to be trans, not about you being trans, but about the general idea of it? Yes. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. Right. Okay. Sure. And and to the to the point that that there were times when I would say I don't know if this is real, you know, is this real? Which is yep, yep, just awful. 
but that's what I was feeling. And we were having this conversation and we'd had many conversations of similar nature in the, you know, three, four years prior to this conversation. But as we were talking about it, you know, she's kind of prodding me in the direction of understanding and acceptance. And um, it's clear to me that she, she had an awareness, she had a knowledge, she had something that I didn't have. Um, and, and, and how she was so accepting of the idea and, and like, no, this is real and this is valid. And, you know, trans women are women and trans men are men. And, right, right, and, and right. as we're going through this, and and with I don't think she intentionally did this, but she really almost took me by the hand and led me through this until I came to the point where she just asked the question about, you know, what if I were to say to you that I was assigned male at birth? She asked that of you. Yeah. And no yeah. <laughs> and I just remember everything changed in that moment. Wow. And I just looked at her and I said, you know what? Love is love. Yeah. And I hope we get to the point where it just doesn't matter at all. And that was so, I, it, that's, it was about as a spiritual moment as I have had outside of a theater, quite frankly, and outside of yeah. maybe getting married that I can, right, I really, right. it, it was, it was game changing for me. And I think in some ways it, allowed me, you know, five years later to finally open up and, and, and be able to see myself for who I am, because in a way, whether she realizes it or not, she had liberated me from, from this stuff. And so there was not a doubt in my mind that when I came to her, that she would be accepting. But again, the strange thing is, is what I didn't necessarily plan on. And, and in a way I probably should have, is that I, I feel, whether she feels this way or not, I don't know, but I feel closer to her now than I did before. Of course. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's not scary sometimes. Well, you're closer to her because she's seeing more of you. There's a part of you that wasn't online before that's online now, right? Yeah. Yeah. And such a beautiful story, Sam. It really is at every turn. Um, and uh, equal parts horrible, too, I know, in the past. But it, um, uh, it seems to definitely be changing in tone for you in this part of your life. Um, yes. One thing when you were talking, I remembered something else that came up from some listeners and some clients. There is still for people um, a lot of confusion around the four continuums that we're dealing with when we're talking about gender identity and sexual orientation and it's it's easy to conflate somebody's gender change with a sexual orientation change with how they dress with how and I just for people who still find this confusing just want to take a moment to explain this on the heels of your explaining uh, gender fluidity non-binary and and pansexual I think that there's still one place where it might be confusing for people we have four different designations we're dealing with the first one is biological sex. That is what you are assigned at birth based on genitalia, right? So assigned yeah. female at birth, assigned male at birth. That is your biological sex. That's one. So we have at one end, male, at the other end, female, and then we have things in between. There are people who are born intersexed where their genitalia is mixed, 
And sometimes it's chosen for them, which it is. Sometimes they're raised as an intersex person, and it can be maybe more female than male. So we have an actual continuum with discrete male and female on other sides and things in the middle. That's biological sex. Then we have gender identification. This is the gender by which the individual identifies. So we have male on one side, female on the other side. We have non-binary and we have gender fluidity, which moves back and forth. That's gender identity. Now we also have gender expression. This is what are the signals that I send with how I dress, how I style myself? What are the signals I send out to the world about my gender? So someone may identify as female and have a male gender expression, vice versa, and it can be anywhere in the middle. So male at one end, female at the other end, everything in the middle. The gender expression continuum is the one that I'm particularly interested to see what happens to that one as time goes on, because it may not even, you know, it should be less discreet, I would think, as we evolve. And then finally, we have sexual orientation, which is you are heterosexual, homosexual, or anything in the middle in between. You can be somewhat 50-50 bisexual. There's things like there are bisexual people who are sexually engaged with both sexes, all genders, but only partner with one. There's all sorts of different ways that uh, that sexuality that isn't straight heterosexuality can work. And I find it can be confusing for people, for example, if a someone who is assigned female at birth identifies as male, undergoes a transition, and dates men. That can be confusing to people who are not as well-versed in these ideas because I think people easily conflate gender identity and sexual orientation and wonder why would someone change their gender to male if they were attracted to men? Well, because they're attracted to men, but they themselves are not female, right? So those are four different things. So for you, biological sex you've decided is non-binary, gender identity, oh, biological sex cannot be non-binary, Jesus, I'm sorry, biological sex is male, (laughs) that would be interesting, biological sex is male, gender identity is non-binary, right, sexual orientation is pan, as you just explained, and how would you identify gender expression? That is very interesting, because (laughs) I think it's, I I think on, on some days on on most days i think at this particular point it is probably male um mostly because of what's in my closet um no pun intended (laughs) but um it 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 feels like yeah that gender expression is definitely leans more toward the masculine but there are certainly things that that that's that skew away from that for me um and i think it'll be kind of a continually evolving thing and on that note Let's take a mindfulness break. This one will be quick. Let's do three box breaths. Box breathing, remember, is in through your nose, six count. Hold your breath, six count. Out through your mouth, six count. Hold your breath, six count. In, hold, out, hold. And I will count you through, and it will be a little bit faster than the times when we've done it in the past. Ready? Okay, you're just starting with inhale through your nose and go. Two, three, four, five, 
six, hold your breath, two, three, four, five, six, exhale, two, three, four, five, six, hold your breath, two, three, four, five, six, inhale, two, three, four, five, six, hold your breath, two, three, four, five, six, exhale, two, three, four, five, six, hold your breath, two, three, four, five, six, inhale, two, three, four, five, six, hold your breath, two, three, four, five, six, exhale, two, three, four, five, six, hold your breath, two, three, four, five, <laughs> sorry. Oh, I can't believe I made it that far, the dancing so bad. That felt like I was instructing aerobics for some reason. It must have been the pace. Oh, maybe because I'm 52, that felt like aerobics. That was like breath work. All right, whatever. Let's get back to Sam. He knows what he's talking about. Um, we are pivoting, though, in the conversation. So just to give you context, uh, we are talking about Sam's relationship with his father specifically on the backdrop of his gender transition. So back to Sam. I think I know the answer here because I always think I know the answer, so maybe I don't. But <laughs> you are not planning on discussing this with your father, correct? Correct. Right. And you may not even discuss anything with your dad at this point. Is that correct as well? Yeah. You know, one of the things that happened recently is that he was moved to a, a long-term, well, long-term, but a, a long-term facility. Um, he, I mean, he'd been in the hospital, like a hospital, for right, the better part right. of like four months. Um, so they finally moved him to a, a care facility. And my sister asked if I wanted to look over the paperwork before she signed it. Um and I, you know, and I just said, sure, um, because so much of so much of those interactions very much feel like they're on autopilot um, that I there's still this idea that I can't say no. Um, right. Right. And I I don't want that to sound like I'm giving up any sort of control or even any sort of power in the situation because I'm accepting of that. Um, it's not a case of, well, I have to do this and I can't say no. It's more along the lines of, I will say yes, because that is the expectation. But I know that if my boundaries are not, I'm not comfortable with the situation that I can, that I can say no. Good. Um, right. So I looked at the paperwork and it was the first time that I, that I literally saw the words hospice care in, in print. Like it was made very real to me. And even though it had been discussed before, there was still this ambiguous quality of what the nature of his care would be. And I right. really didn't understand that this is exactly where we were. And so seeing that, and this just happened yesterday. Um, oh, jeez. Yeah. It has, it's made me realize that no, I don't have to say anything to him that there's no expectation of acceptance 
that any notion of me denying him the right to know me or make up his own mind or have any sort of feelings about it one way or the other uh, is crap, that I don't have to do that, that I don't have to give him that chance. Um, That he is the primary reason why this is something that I was incapable of doing much earlier in my life. And in case anyone didn't hear the first one or doesn't remember, can you talk a little bit about what that means exactly that because of your father, this was not really knowing yourself and, and understanding that you could be who you are. Wasn't an idea that was accessible to you as a younger person because of your relationship with him specifically. You know, I, I, I've been told I've been I've been told multiple times for things that in his eyes were far less worse than, of course, being gay, that right. I that I could go live on the street, that, right, that I could right, leave right. if I didn't like his rules, that I could yeah, go, you know, yeah. and, and, and even on top of that, the notion that even if he didn't come after me, that he could have easily blamed my mom. Right. And then, right. I didn't even think about that. Yep. Yeah. And, and then she would have been the target. Yes. Um. But there was always this expectation that I had to be hetero and male, that I had to carry on the family line, that I had to do this or do that, that early on that sort of hypersexualization um, that is so encouraged in, yeah. in, in young yeah. males was yep. pressed upon me so much so, I, and I'm almost embarrassed to say this, that my grandfather, with full knowledge of my parents, got me a subscription to Playboy magazine when <laughs> I, I was like it. 12 years I old. I believe it. Well, your father would rather have that than, you know, you being exactly. an adult with with Playboy. So, yeah. Or Playgirl, rather. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> um, it's, um... Yeah. There wasn't... The injunction was issued, you know, right. you aren't gay, are you, is not a question. Right? right. Exactly. I mean, it's an injunction. So... And, you know, I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking for you that the messages you were getting all along were that as a boy, you weren't good enough. You weren't right. even doing that well enough. Right. And then yeah. that the possibility that you may decide that's not even who you are like that certainly wasn't acceptable. And so to go back to something we were talking about earlier in the first call, this issue of what you're losing with your dad going and the reason that the grief gets complicated is that you are losing this dad you are losing the dad you did not get to have and you are losing not that there is necessarily any hope left for this although I feel like or and think as well that for most of us in situations like this there's always a little tiny glimmer of it any hope that he was ever ever going to be able to really see you that's going to Right. So all of those things are part of the grief, not just your dad dying. And because you may not see him, you are the the grief is somewhat disenfranchised. Right. You have to hold it (laughs) yourself. That's a great way to put it. You do not have. Is it true that you don't have other family members who will be grieving your father to whom you are close and with whom you are comfortable? That's correct. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's lonely. It is. It is. And it's it's reinforced the importance of that chosen family. 
Yes. And these are the people that I'm coming out to. These are the people right. that, I'm, right. that I'm, you know, telling. And these are the people who are 100% supportive. Um, it's a reminder that the more authentic you are, the more you can be who you are, the more you will find people. Yes. No matter where yes. they are. Yes. Yes, you will find your people. And so the other thing is, I will I will admit this, that there have been a couple of times when I thought that I have found like some community or that I have found a place to, to be or to fit in and have been incredibly disappointed and disheartened. Yeah. And I realize that that's yep. not true. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that stinks. It, in a way, yeah. it's, it's, like, it's like a second adolescence. You know, it's like we have to take the new identity you know, that the identity that was supposed to form between the ages of, you know, ish, 12 and 18, and now we're working on it as adults, and now that identity has to make new friends. Yeah. And there's trial and error just like there was when we were teenagers, only it feels, well, it's very painful when you're a teenager. It feels just as painful when you're an adult, but also a little confusing because it's misplaced chronologically, Right. Like it isn't yes. that social struggle isn't something that that is associated with midlife, right? So it's particularly yeah. challenging. And so much of where I feel like I am right now does it feels like a new adolescence. It yeah, feels like absolutely. And and to think back to all of those times when I was searching and trying to make connections, there was this fear that. I couldn't do it because of all the moving around. There was this fear that I'll be gone in a year anyway. So what does it matter how close I let myself get to anyone else? And every oh, time gosh. you start to let yourself think that maybe it's a little different, then all of a sudden you're moving again. And North Carolina was so hard because we did end up being there for five years. And the truth of the matter is, is after we left at the end of five years, there were like one, maybe two people that I could look back on and be like, yeah, I did. I actually made some connections. And that's bullshit. In five years yep. in high school, that yep. there were only one or two yep. people that you felt connected to. Like, right. come on, right? You know, and 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 I, I, that's the type of thing. That's the type of wound that he inflicted. That's the type of stuff yeah. that he did. And the yep. thing is, is it's like, I know, you know, through again my previous therapy, I know that there is no opportunity to to tell him that, to get satisfaction, if you will, from any kind of conversation that we could have over that. Any time that any sort of conversation was attempted in the years prior when he was healthy and I was younger and you know, still in college or whatever, always, always became about him. It right. always became right. about, you know, his failure or his sadness. And there's this thing where it's just sort of like that, you know, I can look back on it now and I can think to myself, yeah, that's great. I'm really sorry that that's the way that you feel. But in the moment at that time, what that 20 year old kid needed was not to hear about your no, self pity. No. What they needed to do was to hear some sort of, you know, affirmation, some sort of inspiration, some sort of connection, some sort of or acceptance. Even just of my mirroring, feeling. even just that sounds hard. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. And this is something we had spoken about. I asked you in, at the last call, we talked about the, the one time that you felt that your father was proud of you and excited about what you were doing was when you were younger doing theater. And when I asked you about that, 
I Josh asked why I thought that was before you explained it. And since I don't know your dad, I took the guess that maybe he'd been really interested in theater. And you went on to explain that your experience of it was that he it wasn't about theater. It was about you excelling. Yeah. He was not able to connect to you in any way that had anything to do with you. Right. His failure, his sadness, his. And this is. Yeah, I'm sure there are lots of people listening who have had this experience with parents um, and what I've heard from people, it's happened to me too, and I have certainly heard this from many people, and I think this is exactly what you're talking about, is many times when uh, teenage or adult children try to tell their parents things, you know, about things that were hard when they were young or things that happened to them that their parents didn't know, the parents who have the same types of problems that your dad and my mom and lots of other parents have will hijack the story and turn it around and make it about them. And and it's both about their inability to get out of their own feelings and their inability to tolerate ours. Right? They can't yes. they can't tolerate our intense feelings. Yes. And that kind of brings me back to what I said towards the very beginning of this when we were talking about those triggers and talking about yes. those people in the back yes, great. and that idea of impatience and that idea of like, you know, he is, is being impatient with me and now I'm being impatient with myself exactly. and finding myself being impatient with those people that are closest to me. Yep. And it's the same thing with tolerating those emotions, you know, and, and, and luckily I'm again, I'm in that place where I can identify when I'm having difficulty with someone else's big feelings, whether, I mean, with, with the kids, it's very easy. I mean, obviously my, my son's a year and a half, so his big feelings are year and a half year old, big feelings. And you're sort of like, yeah, of course you're going to do that. Right, with right, my right, daughter, right, right. you know, she's, she's, she's approaching five and, and with her, there's this, there's this notion sometimes where, you know, she'll have these big feelings and I'm really good at first. And then, you know, she keeps going because she's, four, you know, of yeah. course she's going to keep going. She doesn't, she doesn't have an off switch or whatever. Nope. She doesn't have those regulators. Nope. She can't self-regulate the same way that we can. And so there gets cortex. to, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there gets to be this point where I start to get, I, I it starts to be too much for me. And it's yes. like, I can't, I can't, I can't handle the you feelings. And I, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and the thing is obviously with her, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to bear down on this. I'm going to give her everything I can possibly give her. I'm going to be there for her the way that they weren't there for me. I'm going to do this. Yeah. I'm going to get through this. And it's exhausting. But then, then, you know, with Jess, it's, it's harder and it really. Yeah. Yep. It really sucks. Cause I don't want that to be the case. You know, I want to be able to just be open for her. And, it, you know, it happened this morning. It happened yeah, this morning. We were going tell to get coffee. Happens. We're going to get coffee. And, uh, we, you know, we we're going to put the order in ahead. Um, and, uh, you know, to get our, our individual points, we we're each going to do it ourselves. And so yeah. I put my order in real quick. I know what I want. I'm done. I'm just driving. And uh, I was listening. I had the podcast on the Making Gay History podcast I was talking about on in the car. I was listening to it as I'm driving. And we get to the stoplight that's right there on the corner before we get to the place. And I, and I, I look over at her and I see that she hasn't put in her order yet. And I'm like, you haven't put in your order yet? And unfortunately, that's about how I said it. It wasn't like, oh, you haven't put in your order yet? Or it's like, oh, do you need help with anything? Or it's like, oh, what's is, is yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or instead, it's just like, you haven't put in your order yet? And, and, and immediately I'm like, oh God, well, 
why did I hate it? Why did I say yeah. it that way? I, that, you know, she doesn't deserve that. And as we're, you know, as we're pulling in, like she, she puts in the order and as we're pulling in, she's kind of like trying to explain. And she even says to me at one point, she's just like, I was feeling really overwhelmed. There's the, you know, the podcast is on and, and I was thinking about this and we've got to do this at the house and we, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, she kind of starts spiraling. She's telling me about her feelings and she's going on and on and on. And I can feel myself just getting really tense. And I'm just sort of like, you know, inside and thinking, oh, I, I can't, I can't take these feelings. I can't, right. I can't do this right now. And I just kind of stopped and I, and I tried to kind of explain, you know, where I was at or why, you know, and, and yeah. even kind of tell her what I needed in that moment. And then I was like, no, that's not working. This is, you know, where do I go from here? And then we, you know, I remember we, we, we picked up the coffees, we go over to Home Depot to, you know, to get the supplies that we need. And I, and I get out of the car and, um, and I'm just kind of standing there for a second and, you know, she's still getting out of the car and as she walks up, I just, you know, I just kind of grabbed her hand and I was like, I'm so sorry. That's not really difficult for you. And I, I, you know, I love you and I accept you completely. And, and I'm sorry that that was hard for you. And I can be happy in one way that that's how it went. Right. But for fuck's sake, I want to not have to okay. do that. Right? Okay. So good. Let's stop here for one second. And let me ask you. Was it you, 41-year-old Sam, who could not tolerate all of those feelings from her, or was it a different part? Was it a younger part? T- take, think of this. Think of how you felt. Think of how you felt in the moment when you were flooded, right? Think about the moment when you felt the very worst in that situation. Hold on to that feeling for a minute. And then trace it back in time and tell me when you have felt that before. Oh, so many times. But you know what? An easy one to grasp is that moment I was talking about earlier when he said, why do I even claim you? You know, it was so emotionally raw. Right. So when you are witnessing Jess in the role that you were in with your dad, and projecting that shame onto her you haven't done it yet right like what's wrong with you right just as was being told to you and then for you afterwards when you realize it there's this wave of shame like you just said but damn I don't want that to be the reaction right and so this is where it's a very very delicate line on one hand it was really important and you did it really beautifully that you repaired that moment with your wife, right? Yeah. What what the trick is is not to take the fact that you needed to initiate repair as a reason to beat yourself up. It you don't want to take the next step into I hate when I do that because you don't want to repeat it, but once we start to hate what we do, we're kind of hating on ourselves, we're hating on that part that's just going to keep the part from being integrated. So after you've repaired with your wife, then you want to take some time to think about that part and why it got triggered, right? Like, yeah, Yeah. it's hard to watch. It's hard to have patience with other people when they're doing things that nobody had patience for with us. It doesn't seem fair that she gets to take her time when we didn't. I get that, right? But we're older now and we can be patient and we can do things. We can do things that are hard, even if we didn't get them for ourselves. It doesn't make you bad that you are impatient with her, but we're going to try to do it different next time. 
You have to give that part some love and understanding that you didn't get. And that's when that reaction will start to temper and when it will start to die down is when there isn't that fear of shame, when it isn't that contact with, but I'm bad, why isn't she bad? Yeah, then, (laughs) right? Yeah. It'll start to settle. And being able to love that part for doing the best it can to heal itself when it doesn't know how. Right? I know it's so much work. It is. It's a huge bucket of dicks while we're doing it. It's a lot of work. (laughs) However, there's a ton of, I don't like to use the word power because it has negative connotations, but there's this incredible, for lack of a better word, power that comes with being a cycle breaker. And you don't really feel it in yourself until you've done the work. Other people feel it before, though, which is why we tend to have sort of polarizing personalities. But people, people feel it. We don't feel it till we do the work. So when you come out the other side of this, I promise you. It's, you don't, like, you can't even imagine now. It's going to be hard for a little while longer. It's going to be exhausting, right? I mean, you always, you have to be so tired, Sam, so tired right oh, now. I am. Yeah. I am so tired. I can imagine. I, I just, but, you know, I do feel good. You know, that's yeah. the thing. It's like most of the time I feel good, and that is not who I was. Right. You know, three years ago. Right. Much right. less 10, 15, 20 years ago. Right. Um, and it used to be that I felt like there was never a place for me. And now I feel like there is and there will be. And I'm finally, finally starting to feel safe. Better late than never, huh, Sam? Yeah. I, know, I do know what you mean, that as exhausting as it is, it's exciting and it's liberating right? And it's all of those things. And you get to feel good things that you didn't have any access to before, you know, because there's whole parts of yourself that weren't online, right? Right, Whole parts of yourself. Something we talked about in terms of where you go from here, you were talking about having done the talk therapy work that would get you positioned to do the trauma work. And I know we've talked about EMDR certainly as something that you and I will look at um, when we're off the show. Um, but also we had started developing a morning routine for you, but I, I know that you've been moving and you have two young kids. <laughs> so I just yeah. wanted to check in and if you've gotten any traction there, no shame, brother, no shame. You know, the, the short answer is no, yeah, but that is not for lack of trying. <laughs> I believe that. I believe that. Um, but you know, the nice thing is, is that we are, I would say within a week, we will, we will finally be you know, fully moved in. I don't want to say done, but we fully moved in. And I think being able to start routines and actually maintain them will be an actual possibility because yeah, right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So one last thing I wanted to check in on, because I've already had you on the phone for quite a while. Again, I know that your episode was our longest one ever, which does not surprise me. Does not surprise no, me No, it doesn't all. surprise. It wouldn't <laughs> surprise anybody who knows me. <laughs> More, but look, brevity has never been my strong suit, Sam. So we, yeah, we're, we're a good match then. Um, yeah. One thing that, this is another thing that somebody asked about. A, a client asked me about the fact that you mentioned that you are certain that you were abused sexually very young. And someone want, was asked me, 
if it's possible that someone can know something that if they don't remember the specifics. And once again, like the other question, I answered it, but I think it would be better if you talked a little bit about your experience of interacting with that, that knowledge, that memory. Yeah. Um, so I do have specific memories. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I was, uh, I, I cannot be certain how old I was. Okay. Um, but I can be certain that it's one of my earliest memories. Okay. Um, I think I was three or four. Oh, yeah, um, which is right around the time that most people have would count their earliest memory. Yep. Yeah, and it was my uncle, and oh, uh, he, we were. Uh, he had a model of uh, Kit, you know, the car from Knight Rider, and I was just. I, you know, I, I, I wanted that model for myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so he told me that I could help him build it. And um, I remember you know, we got all the pieces out, we got the box out and, you know, then he like laid down and, and asked me to come lay down next to him. And yeah, you know, it just, yep, yep, it was. Yep, 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 I do. So yeah, I, okay, I, so I, you I do, do remember. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that's another thing we can look at EMDR around. Um, do you have clear ideas of how that experience connects to challenges you've had in relationships as an adult, or do you not have connection? Oh. <laughs> no, I, I, have, I, I have a mean, pretty big sex abuse history, so I figured, but I don't like to assume, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, because I, I, will, I will be completely honest. The through line has not become completely clear to okay. me, okay. but it has started to become very clear to me, and the immediate fallout the immediate fallout of that at the oh, risk of oh, people being knew. too explicit. No, no, like, no, it's okay. I remember, no, no, I, I, no one knew. No oh, one okay. knew. Um, but I can remember shortly after this, like it was my, I, I don't want to make light of it, but it's, it's just the way that I can handle it. I wanted everyone to see my penis. Oh yeah. It, you know, <laughs> like totally. it was like, it was like, Hey, I, I want to show you guys something. This um, is, yeah, this and, is what happens when you're, a, when you're introduced to sexuality too young before you're ready for it you can become definitely precocious if not a little bit obsessive and i yeah mm -hmm. i had that same experience not so much wanting to show people me but wanting to see everything yeah 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 and it's so difficult because I, it's something that on one hand i feel like i want to own my sexuality, um, but I question just how much I am in control of my own impulses and seeing the ways that I have, you know, both injured myself and, and, and those around me as a result of that, it's clear to me that repression of any sort is never going to be healthy. I'm assuming what you're talking about is uh, being unfaithful or violations in relationships. Is that what you mean? Yeah. yeah. So um, I was the other person in, in a couple of people's relationships. And, and I, you know, I, it's, it's one, of, one of the was long term. And, yep. uh, you know, it's, it's something that I am definitely not proud of. And um, let's talk about this for a minute. Let's talk about this for a minute. So you're talking about being the other person in with someone who's in a committed relationship more than once and one time long term. And so 
For people who do not share the experiences that you and I do and may not understand the connection between the childhood sex abuse and that behavior, I'm going to explain it, but you may be having a different experience of it. So certainly um, amend it (laughs) if it's not how it applies to you. But my understanding of this connection is that those thing that comes up all the time on this podcast that we're talking about a lot, those core beliefs that get formed when we endure traumatic experiences as children. So I've mentioned before that for most of the people I have worked with, uh, most of the people that I know and for myself, when there is a sex abuse experience, the negative cognition that forms as a result is most often some version of I am disgusting, I am gross or I am dirty. So we go through the rest of our lives until we heal carrying that core belief, it starts to operate as a lens. For example, if I'm dating someone, you know, in my early 20s and my teens and they break up with me and this is my history and that's my core belief, I may filter that experience through the lens of of that core belief such that I think that's why it happened and now I have more proof for the fact that I'm disgusting. See, that's why he broke up with me. If it weren't for the fact that I was so gross, this wouldn't have happened. So that belief becomes more and more entrenched. And Another principle that people I think are relatively familiar with is that we will act according to who we believe we are, what we believe we deserve. And so for those of us who think as a result of being sexually abused as children that we are dirty, it feels right and comfortable to be the dirty little secret in a relationship, right? Yep. It just feels like what makes sense. That's who we are. And so... What we give ourselves is these relationships in which we are providing, you know, a physical sexual relationship and not allowing ourselves to have the benefits of the rest of it because that's all we deserve. That's what we're here for. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. We're going to take care of that. We're going to clean that up. And I think maybe, (laughs) given the time, what we should do is I'm going to ask you to come back after we've done a little work. And uh, talk yeah. about what's different, what's been changing, and where you are. Does that sound like a plan? That sounds great. Excellent. Uh, excellent. Sam, thank you so much. And I say that from Josh and from me, but also from the um, endless number of people who have written to me to tell me about your episode and the effect it had on them. So thank you for being so open and for sharing this so that, you know, the people who share the experiences can be validated and supported. And for the people who don't really understand the experience, you know, we're doing this just as much for them so that hopefully it's a little more accessible and a little less scary. Right. Yeah. Um, Because there is so much fear around this stuff right now, obviously being turned into legislation. So um, whatever we can do to make it a little less mysterious. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, obviously thank you so much to you and thank you to Josh for listening. Uh, and, um, well, yeah. And if and, all I do is talk, if it weren't for Josh, nobody would ever hear any of this stuff. Cause I, got notes. <laughs> I can't even handle email. So Josh does everything except the therapy. And I also just wanted to say real quick to, to, to thank, um, I don't know that they're listening or anything, but to thank Kelly and Rachel and Ari as well, because I think that it's, Separate experiences aside and everything, it is always incredibly comforting to know that there are people out there that have struggled and and, and, and have their own trauma histories and also feel 
like they can give something by sharing those. And I just think that it's incredibly important. And I think that it's pretty special that they did the same thing and that you are providing that that space as well as, you know, just being awesome. And, and I really appreciate it. Sam, you just made Josh cry for the third time. <laughs> Josh has <laughs> cried. <laughs> it's that, star, that story with your daughter got him twice. Twice. Yeah. <laughs> just now. Yeah. <laughs> and if people knew... He's like this 6'4", broody, grumpy <laughs> fucking cancer. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. Uh, Sam, we love you here so much. And I really look forward to doing some work with you that everybody isn't listening to. <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm sure it's going to be really exciting to bring you back after we've been able to do some of that. So thank you again. And you and I will talk soon. That sounds great. Thanks so much. Bye-bye, Sam. You've been listening to Psychotherapist. I'm your host, Renee's son. And I'm your host, Renee, who evidently can't talk when my son is here. I am here, however, with Josh. And before we say goodbye, just a reminder that if you want to be a guest on the podcast, you can email us at thepsychotherapistpodcast.com or DM me on Instagram, psycho underscore therapist underscore Renee. Next Sunday night, next episode drops, new guest. Talk to you then.